0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: This episode of Red Ink we have a legendary writer from India. My name is
0: Ramachandra Guha and I was unemployed or self-employed for many years but I've recently taken a position at a university in South India near Chennai.
1: With the release of his new book, I asked him to come on so we could talk about his journey as a cricket fan, from dreaming about being a night watchman, all the way through to helping run the BCCI. Talk about patriotism, cricket governance, the beauty of Warn and Wasim, radio commentary, and leaky toilets. Your dream when you were young was to be unbeaten night watchman in a school match. As far as cricket dreams go, that's one one of the more mediocre ones I've ever heard. Well, actually a college
0: match, not a school match. Sorry. uh, (laughs) All right. And uh, a rather special kind of college match, St. Stephen's versus Hindu College for the final of the Delhi University Championship, far bigger than Oxford versus Cambridge, with 20,000 people coming to watch, daily reports in the newspaper, commentary, live commentary by All India Radio, and the great Bishan Singh Bedi, captain of Delhi, coming to scout around for young talent. So not just an ordinary college match, but a really sort of like the final of a college basketball tournament in the States, you know, Southern Methodist versus Duke kind of thing.
1: But even if you talk it up, your dream was to be the night watchman. It wasn't to take seven wickets or open the batting and and hook a bunch of sixes. Night watchman, that's pulling it down a bit.
0: Well, that's because as I explained in the book, That's because of the extraordinarily early exaggerated status batsmen have in the game. There's another story I tell in the book, which is of Arthur Maley going to Len Hutton in 1956 when he was knighted. And uh, the great leg break bowler Arthur Maley going to the English batsman after he was knighted and saying, congratulations, Sir Leonard, but I hope next time it is a bowler. The last bowler to be knighted was Sir Francis Drake. Now, what it really shows is... um, and I was rebelling. It was kind of an unfulfilled rebellion against a hierarchical system which played batsmen at the top and bowlers at the
1: bottom. And I'm assuming when you weren't dreaming, you were a bowler as well.
0: I was a bowler. <laughs> and I batted number 10, more of number 11.
1: One thing I noticed that was quite interesting in your book is you talked about how your dreams sort of changed as you got older when it came to cricket. And one of the things that you dreamed about was Shane Warne and was a macro.
0: Well, not so much dreamed as now I'm too old to dream. So to put myself to sleep, I think about Shane Warne and Wasimakram. So, you know, I'm in my 60s and the older you get, you're a young man, Jared. The older you get, I mean, maybe your kids keep you awake, but not other <laughs> things. Not biological decay, but it, old people find it difficult to sleep. So I can't sleep. I try to put myself to sleep, imagining Shane Warne's neck break or Akram's late in Africa, because they were the two most fabulous bowlers I've seen.
1: Well, I want to go into detail of this because I can't put myself to sleep with cricket because the minute I go into that, I then got to go to the field, the kind of batsman it is, and I get too much in it. And then it, it's 2 a.m. at this point, and I'm working out if I need, you know, a leg slip for worn to a left-hander at that point. Is it just the visual aspect? It's almost like you're counting sheep, but you're counting leg spinners and in-swingers.
0: Yeah, it's the visual aspect and it's the aesthetics of it. I mean, if you see in my book, Janet, they are often particular incidents described. A low catch taken by Azuruddin at second slip. An on-drive by a college batsman I admired. You know, a straighter one by the off-spinner spinner Arapalli Pasanna, which gets someone LBW. So the aesthetics of cricket is something that always appealed to me. And both Warren and Akram were beautiful bowlers. Not just great bowlers, not just deadly bowlers, not just match-winning bowlers, but beautiful bowlers.
1: You are Indian, and Wazam Akram is Pakistani. and. Yeah obviously that brings with it, especially now, maybe uh, as much as ever, a political side of it as well. When you say that, and there's some uh, right-wing BJP supporting Indians in the crowd, how did you talk about Wasim Akram's beautifulness go down with them?
0: Well, there's an incident in the book, which is about, I'm watching uh, the 1996 quarterfinal in Bangalore between India and Pakistan, and Javed Miandad gets out. He comes to the pavilion the last time he exits the field as an international player and I stand up to clap, I am the only person clapping him, you know, and I'm proud that I was the only person clapping him because he was a truly great player, so what, he was Pakistani, of course, are uh, aspects of Pakistani society I detest, of their foreign policy, of their meddling in Kashmir, of their sponsoring terror attacks in India, but I glory in the cricketers, that's why there's a chapter in this book called Some Favourite Pakistanis, who are 11 cricketers I admire who play for Pakistan.
1: I wonder, obviously, your career, as you said, you're, you're getting over 60 now, so you're closing in on the 100, but you know, it's the last few runs sometimes can be the trickiest when we go up that high. Do you think in 50 years' time there will be people writing similar books, or will anyone put a chapter like that in 30 years' time about their favorite Pakistani cricketers in an Indian book?
0: Well, people won't be writing this kind of book. Maybe they'll be writing about favorite Pakistani cricketers. You never know. I mean, France and Germany fought two bloody world wars, and now they're the best of friends, and Neither likes England very much, which I think is to their credit, given what happened with Brexit and so on. But France and Germany were really bitter, bitter, bloody battles. They fought through the 19th and the 20th century and look at them now. So it's possible. But people will not be writing this kind of book, Jared, because this book is written by someone whose first memories of international cricket were oral, listening to the radio. And for many years, not only oral, you know. And the first live television match I watched was when I was in my 20s. There was not even any television around, let alone smartphones and YouTubes and actual replays and so on. So the cricket I learned about and learned to love, I was exercising my imagination much more, getting up at 5 a.m. I grew up in a small town in Gerardun, which is the sub himalayan town, sub-zero temperatures. And I'm getting up early in the morning. The rest of my family is sleeping. I have the radio on, very low and my ear is next to it. And I hear the voice of Alan McGilbray. On late at night, again, when the family is sleeping, John Arlott describing the last over of a Lord's Test match at 11 p.m. Indian time. So that kind of capacity to imagine is lost to the modern cricket fan because he gets it spoon-fed with 25 different actions he plays on television. And stories. So, you know, another incident in my book is about my uncle, who's a great hero of this book, who really made me a cricket lover, telling me in the 1970s, of the first guest match that India ever won, which was in 1952, 20 years earlier, when Mankat, the great left arm spinner, got 12 wickets against England. And my uncle didn't see it on television or live. He heard about it on the radio. And maybe there was a cousin at the ground who told him about it. And 20 years later, he was recollecting how Mankat got Tom Gravely stumped. Now, that kind of uh, story, of course, is not told anymore to young kids. So it won't find its way into the pages of books. So in that sense, yes. I mean, people will write different books, better books, more interesting books, more technically sophisticated books, but they won't write books based on memories. And books seen essentially through a little boy's eyes, which is what most of this book is, but they write the end. Yeah. <laughs> when it becomes a professional cynics view of how cricket is running to the ground in India. Yeah, yeah.
1: One of the interesting things I found in the book is it tracks your journey of going from wanting your team to win to wanting a good match. And I think a lot of people who've worked in cricket probably get to that point earlier on than other fans, only because if you're an English cricket coach, you might be working with South Africa. or So you end up loving cricketers and loving cricket more. But it's really interesting following your journey of that. When did you start to notice that India wasn't as important to you as the result or that or the spectacle was?
0: probably in the 1980s when I was around in my thirties. I mean, it's hard to date it precisely, but I remember an innings, which I again described in the book, a partnership between Grant Flower and Andy Flower. Zimbabwe had just come into testing it. And there were these two brothers fighting a magnificent rearguard action against the great Anil Kumle on a turning track in Delhi. And I was watching it on the ground. And then you start thinking, hey, these guys are really good. You know, they come from a tiny country, just got independence, you know, Five or 10 million people. They're not really known for cricket to that extent. And look at how they're holding out against India. So that may have been one of the turning points. And again, there's an epigraph in my book that comes from Jack Fingleton, who says this. He says, The older I get, the less nationalistic I become. Mm. And he was a test cricketer, unlike you or me, or unlike Gideon Haig. He was a test cricketer. And he played for Australia in the bodyline scene. So he should be most invested in having Australia always win. But he outgrows it. The older he gets, the more cricket he watches. And often, I like it much better when India are not playing because you have no emotional investment and because Indian television commentators are so bad. They're so loud, <laughs> they talk all the time. It takes all the joy out of watching cricket.
1: Another interesting thing I, I found with you, though, you did say that you still cheer for bowlers, which is fair and right and uh, definitely promoted on this podcast, but you still like your regional teams. You still yeah. want a Mumbai to lose. And, you know, yeah. I think most of us feel that way. But that. For me, I came from cricket as a Victorian fan. I grew up in in Melbourne and like Victoria, and I was convinced there was a conspiracy to defraud Victoria, and that's why all the New South Wales guys were in the team. And we had to produce someone like Shane Warne to even get… And he
0: never became captain. He never became captain because he was Victorian.
1: Yeah, exactly. We thought all of those things. Dean Jones, his whole career was ruined because he was a Victorian. It's funny that you kept on to that. So the one thing that you sort of moved on from is that sort of nationalistic cricket fan, wasn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah. So my loyalty to my club, which actually precedes my loyalty to my state, the Pennsylvania Cricket Club, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the young boys of my club play once the pandemic permits, uh, spectators at club matches. Club matches have just started in India last week, but they don't allow people to come. For sure, I mean, club and state always before country for me today.
1: Um, I suppose uh, as someone who's obviously spent a lot of time in India over the years, and the one thing I've noticed is there's a huge disconnect between Indian cricket fans who grew up before 1983 and were already cricket fans before 1983 and people who grew up after 1983. And generally the ones before 1983 can tell you what Dav Watmore's tour stats were in the first class 11. And the guys after that, it's much more about India. Have you noticed that sort of big disconnect yes. where there are Indian cricket fans and there are cricket fans who are Indian. And it seems to be 1983 is a very good dividing way to look at that.
0: Yes. 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 It's possible. This might change. I mean, Almost the only thing to be said in favour of the IPL is that it may reawaken an appreciation of great foreign cricketers, albeit only in T20, and which is a vulgar and debased form of the game. But it's a sort of cricket anyway. So that when you see AB de Villiers bat or Lasith Malinga bowl and win matches by their batting or bowling, you may learn to appreciate them in a the way you would appreciate Kohli or Bumrah. But otherwise, you're absolutely right. I mean, when I was growing up, we had space in our minds and our hearts for the Australian and West Indian and New Zealand and Pakistani cricketers, And later on, it only became Indian, 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 India, India, India. That's it
1: there was something interesting that you've written, and I haven't read much about this, so I found it very odd when I saw it. You talked about the way that India cricket patronised New Zealand cricket and Sri Lanka, although obviously they were a bit later in the game, Yeah, in the same way that Australia and England had patronised India. So I never really realised that. I kind of felt like everyone was all in it together. But there was a real pecking order even back in the 60s and 70s. Of
0: course, of course. And it goes back, I mean, there's some interesting parallels with the Indian caste system, you know. The person who's second from bottom in the caste hierarchy takes great pleasure in disparaging the person at the bottom. Of course, the person who disparages the person at the bottom the most is the Brahmin at the top. But you get this kind of vicarious delight in saying, someone is worse than you, and let's sort of be big brother to that guy. So I remember growing up, I think, okay, yeah, you know, Bert Sutcliffe is a good batsman, and uh, John Reed is a fighter, but they'll come and they'll lose 5 nil and go away from you, right? So that's kind of shock. So the parallel was with Australians patronizing us when we visited because we also lost 4-0 and 5-0 when we went to Australia in the 60s
1: and 70s. Your career as a cricket writer, obviously you've written some very good cricket books. So, um, you know, corner of a foreign field, I quoted extensively when I did, you know, my history of cricket and it's an incredible cricket book. But by the 2000s, you're not really a -a workaday cricket writer. You're writing about Gandhi and everyone else. Between, let's say, 2000 and 2017, what kind of a cricket fan are you? Are you just casual at that point and just occasionally writing about cricket?
0: So you're absolutely right. I published two books in the game in the early 90s, 92 and 94. Then I, two books in the early 2000s. I also had a fortnightly cricket column in the Hindu, which ran, I think, from 1997 till about 2001. Then I started writing about other things, but I still followed test cricket mostly. And of course, club cricket and state cricket. But I was largely out of the game, and I was not following it on a day to day basis. I was not writing about it. I, I, I would write when somebody retired. So when Dravid retired or Kumle retired, mm. I would write about it. Or when Tendulkar reached a certain landmark. But I was really very much on the margins of the cricketing world from about 2002 to 2017.
1: And one of the reasons I ask that is your kind of book, there's quite a few out there. Shield Berry wrote one recently. A lot of older cricket writers get to your age. Not that I want to say you're old. You look very sprightly to me, but a lot of older cricket writers who've worked in the game for a long time get to a certain point and they write that kind of reflective piece about it. But the thing is that... Your book ends up being something completely different because, at that point, as you said, you wrote about it very much from the you know a childhood perspective. Yeah. But the very end of your book is really all about the fact that you end up running the most powerful cricket board in the world, pretty much on your own, from what I can remember.
0: Yeah, so there were four of us, and I was one of the four members. But uh, you're absolutely right. So you know, it happened by accident. You know, I was attending a meeting of um, India's leading biological sciences center where I have, you know, I have some friends with uh, whom I've occasionally exchanged ideas, uh, professional academic ideas. And I had this call uh, from a well-known lawyer whom I admired saying, will you serve on this committee? And I thought about it and I said, yes. Now, the only part of this book, Jared, that is based on other than my memories are the two chapters in the BCCIA because I realized this is going to be something interesting and important. I didn't really know it would be controversial at that stage. So I started keeping a diary from the first day from the day the announcement was made and what was said about it in the Twitterverse and what the right-wing Modi Bucks were saying about this Mm. left-wing historian on the committee and so on. So then when I left, I decided to write the book, not really because of those four very intense and ultimately fruitless months, but because I always knew somewhere, sometime I wanted to pay tribute to my uncle Doré, my first cricketing hero. Mm. And this seemed the perfect arc. A childhood love for cricket growing up in an obscure backwater of Indian cricket, a Himalayan child of Jaradun and ending up in the board. So it seemed like a perfect arc to recollect within the confines of a memoir.
1: And early on, because you had worked in cricket, I think one of the lines you wrote in the book was that you'd long detested the control over the BCCI of scheming politicians and the self-important. So you obviously thought that there was something there that was worth fighting for and that you could do something good.
0: Yes, in fact, the first draft of the book, I mean, to reveal a secret, had said that I had referred to the board as the board for corruption and cronyism in India. <laughs> and the lawyer said, I can't, I was, I'm convinced I actually said this in public too, maybe in a tweet, but uh, the lawyer couldn't find it, so it was deleted. But it was corrupt and cronyistic, and had long detested it and uh, the kind of things it had done. But that was from the outside. And from the inside, of course, I thought now that the Supreme Court seems to be taking an interest, maybe, you know, we can do something. But ultimately, partly because of uh, the absolute timidity of our chairman, which I described in the book, and of course, the pushback by the old guard of the BCCI, and above all, the fact that the Supreme Court of India lost interest in cleaning up Indian cricket. It was a futile exercise
1: very interesting that you end up there as you say the the right wing wasn't particularly happy especially at that point that indian cricket was so much a way of furthering the indian national agenda that you know almost the americanization of india or of the exceptionalism as india get better and better as you go how did you actually handle sort of being in the spotlight i know you've had to do it before you know with your book on gandhi and other things but how did you handle being in the spotlight with the bucks and the right wing bloggers all having a go
0: I mean, they detested me for my liberal views and my belief in Indian pluralism and my defence of minority rights. So I was already a hate figure there. So I was used to it. So that really didn't bother me. What distressed me much more was that the committee was not fulfilling the mandate given to it by the court, and our chairman, Mr. Vinod Rai, in particular, was extraordinarily pusillanimous in uh, confronting. Uh, the vested interest in the world. So the the abuse on Twitter and Elsa, I didn't really mind at all. I mean, because I was used to that. It was that the Supreme Court had given us a responsibility and we were not even trying to fulfill it.
1: And obviously, Mr. Entranivasan becomes involved, even if he was not there at the time. He was certainly pulling strings in the background. You talk about him as a textbook case of authoritarian personality. Obviously, he's someone I've come up against in my life. It feels like no matter what happens in Indian cricket, his shadow is just so large that people are afraid of him at all times. Did you feel like that when you were on the committee as well?
0: No, because we thought we would push back against him. But something else has happened now. Essentially, what has happened now is that there is a compact between him and the Home Minister Amit Shah, whose son was the secretary of the board. Hmm. So, if N. Srinivasan was the textbook case of the authoritarian personality, Amit Shah is the textbook case of the control freak. I mean, the absolute, <laughs> con- the control freak, on So, he wants to control everything. So, the Home Ministry, the BJP, or how the police is run, how coercive methods are used to suppress the Kashmiris, and also Indian cricket via his son and N. Srinivasan. And of course, he can't do that full time. And he trusts N. S. D. Vassan because to do part of the job for him. And Ganguly really is really a puppet in their hands. So that's really what has happened. So it's somewhat even more powerful, even more dangerous than N. S. D. Vassan, the home minister of India, who is essentially the most important person in world cricket
1: today. And one thing, I mean, you talked a lot about money. One thing I've always wondered, there's so much money in Indian cricket. The BCCI is in control of masses of amounts. And yet you talk about your friend going to Chinaswami and they don't have proper firefighting equipment and the toilets are leaking. Where does all the money go? I've never been able to get on top of this. If, if they're making so much money through the IPL and international cricket, how come the toilets don't work in these stadiums?
0: I think there are many aspects of Indian public life that are mismanaged. So, you know, leakages and corruption are not unique to the administration. They permeate many other institutions, both uh, public and private. Uh, it's because there's no accountability. I mean, the members don't have a voice. They can't push back. In this case, the press is also tamed. And the taming of the press even extends to someone like Shashank Malohar, who's not a textbook case of an authoritarian personality and is a better administrator, mm. but won't allow critical journalists to get press passes. So if you don't have a feedback loop, I mean, our prime minister has not given a press conference in six years. That's one of the reasons he's run the economy into the ground, because he can't listen to good advice. And likewise, these guys who run Indian cricket are happy to be in power. The cricketers, you know, we are a one-sport nation, unlike Australia. So 600 billion Indians. Now you have the IPL, which is a drug that, you know, puts them to sleep. And enjoy for two months a year. And no questions asked about how money is distributed. I mean, I was horrified by the fact that Ranji Trophy players, you know, our premier first-class tournament, those who play in it, their dues have not been settled for months on end. And I think it's still the case now. So let it know the leaky toilets, even uh, let it know the spectators. I mean, even uh, they're being short-term, but even the first-class players are not being properly compensated. It's all IPL.
1: So the big three, part of the reason that Cricket Australia and the ECB got involved with that is they were afraid of Indian cricket going alone, which is always the thing that is always used to sort of dangle above the other cricket boards. My thought on this has always been that, if you are a cricket official in India and you take the Indian team out of international cricket, are you not taking out part of the exceptionalism of the Indian cricket team You know, for the fans? The fact that India can beat Pakistan and beat England and beat Australia, that's still a big part of what a lot of normal Indian cricket fans do. The first person who takes that team away and goes on their own is uh, risking their life, I think.
0: I used to think that way, Jared, but I'm not sure anymore. Because the IPL is not just a centrepiece it consumes. 90% of the attention of the board and 95% of the attention of the fans. So we are currently touring Australia. We were beaten in the one-day series. Uh, we are very likely to be beaten in the test series. I mean, T20 cricket, we are quite good, so I don't know what will happen there. But you can safely predict that it's unlikely, particularly since Kohli is not playing three matches, that we'll be really competitive to the test series. Will a resounding defeat prompt reflections on how to run cricket better? Unlikely. I say in my book that given that India is a one-sport nation, We're a billion people. We have 30 first-class teams. The players are very well-funded. There's massive patronage. Given all that, we should never be losing even a single match. Hmm. But yet we do quite often. And sometimes, not just to Australia, but New Zealand, which has, you know, 4 million human beings and 50 million sheep. Now, given how overwhelmingly important cricket is in India, I mean, I don't know about Australia. It's certainly second to Australian rules football. Maybe Hmm. even soccer is a more important sport broadly among the population than cricket, is my guess. In England, it's below soccer and rugby, for sure. And yet, we lose to these teams. There must be something seriously wrong with the way the game is run. But maybe our fan, IPL is a way in which we can keep the fans entertained if they don't care about it.
1: Uh, it's really interesting, if it has changed that much. It, I wonder, I wonder. And
0: There was a time when we were really, really... If we go back 10 or 15 years, of course, losing to Pakistan, people couldn't take. But even if we lost to Australia, there'd be bottles thrown on the field and the players mm. would be called names. It'll be interesting to see whether IPL has acted as the kind of soporific drug I'm talking about and even dull the nationalism that often has gone into the making of the community. It'll be interesting to see because if we do lose badly in Australia, it'll be interesting to say what the press says. Do the press ask questions? I mean, I don't know how do you've been following what's happening, but our best one-day batsman, Rohit Sharma, was missing because he was injured in the IPL. And although he was injured, he still played the final. He should have sat out the final, recovered, had gone to Australia. So clearly for Rohit Sharma and for others, the IPL is more important than playing for India.
1: As someone who's written about almost every cricket nation, I've come through and done the history. One thing you do notice is there is a point always early on in your team's sort of national identity where it's so important that you win and then it becomes less about that, it's possible that the IPL is just speeding up that for India or that India is such a superpower around the world now, such a big country, that perhaps Indian fans don't need that validation of uh, beating Sri Lanka as much as they used to.
0: Well, again, one can't say. See, when N. Siddhivasan started throwing his weight around in international cricket, right, India was advancing economically and politically as well. You know, our economy was growing at 6 to 8% a year, we had a very high status, particularly in the democratic world because uh, we were a plural open democracy in contrast to China. Now the economy is slipping and we are becoming a majoritarian and authoritarian state. So we are still a cricketing superpower, but our claims to be a rising power have been punctured maybe irredeemable by Narendra Modi's mismanagement of the economy and our foreign relations. So. If we are becoming more powerful, more influential, more respected around the world in every other sphere, so apart of economics and politics, it's our great writers, it's our musicians, it's the films we make, all that is applauded. But if in the, every non-cricketing sphere we are declining, is it enough to still have the most money to run cricket by the, by the IPL? That's again an interesting question that will be answered in the forthcoming years.
1: One other thing you talk about a lot in that BCCI section of your book is the superstar culture, and you talk about the conflicts of interest with Raul Dravid and, and Sunil Gavaskar. But one of the other interesting things about that superstar culture that you're talking about is one of the reasons you were on the committee is because you were quite famous. I mean, you put forward Sharda Ugra's name, my, my former colleague's name, yes, who had worked yes. in cricket a lot more than you at that point. Right. And Correct. yet because you're more famous than Sharda, right. they went went for you. It's, it's, it's a really interesting thing, isn't it?
0: It is, it is. And it, it, it permeates all aspects of our life. I, mean, I haven't thought about it that way, but you're absolutely right. I mean, for example, if I may add a just a personal anecdote, which something that occurred today. There's a major farmers movement on in India right now. I don't know if they've been following reports of it. Mm-hmm. But farmers of North India are protesting against some farm bills. And of course, Modi won't listen to them. So those who are leading the farmers movement, some of them asked me to come out in support of the farmers. I said, look, I don't know economics, I don't know agriculture. They said, but you came out in protest against the citizenship bill. And I said, I'm a biographer of Gandhi, and the citizenship bill discriminates against Muslims. That a biographer who has to come. But all they want is a celebrity well known guy to say, I'm with the farmers. Now, this mm. is very common. In Australia, it must happen that singers will turn up on a certain kind of rally or you know, a climate change rally or whatever. So, celebrity endorsement is quite common. And maybe you're right. I mean, maybe I was on that committee when Sharda or would have been better than me. Right? I think you're probably right.
1: Yeah, yeah. I found the whole thing, that, that whole section, so interesting. Also, you lasted four months. I think I was talking to certainly someone who knew you at the time, and we were trying to work out how long you would go, because you're not a man that I would have thought that would have been made to be on a governing committee, because... There are a lot of tedious things, and things move very slowly. And most of your frustrations come from the fact that everyone else is sort of sitting pat when you're saying there are things here we need to fix. You just were never quite made to be on a committee, like I would have assumed. You're quite
0: right, Karen. And uh, that account with a prediction an Aust- astrologer made, <laughs> where he said this guy's an individualist, and he was always an individualist, and now his Saturn has entered. A certain phase, and he's going to be even more rebellious than before. And I say uh, in that section, if Mr. Vinod Rai had read my horoscope, he wouldn't have agreed
1: to my (laughs) being a member of his committee. (laughs) I am probably not very good at committees generally. Yeah. How did those four months change you as a cricket fan? I spent about four years doing Death of a Gentleman. And so I spent four years looking at every article about cricket administration in the world. And by the end, I was a bit burnt out. Not by the game. I still love watching the game. But just by how it was run and everything. I would think that four months working (laughs) with the BCCI would be even more intense than what I went through. So how did it change your love of cricket?
0: Well, I think the fact that cricket was only part of my life has kept things in perspective. Mm -hmm. obviously i was disappointed that we could not do anything to clean up the bccia some of my encounters left a bitter taste in my mouth which i've recounted in my book but given what i do outside cricket i am much more dismayed and depressed by the rising wave of majoritarianism and authoritarianism in my country and the creation of this extraordinary personality cult around our prime minister who's undoing everything that India was supposed to be. So, in that sense, you know, cricket has again become for me consolation and escape. And I'll watch Test matches with pleasure and take, you know, what I'm looking forward to is Mitchell Stark bowling to Pujara, trying to get his insurer, past Pujara's defence. So, that's what cricket is to me. I've gone back to being a fan.
1: This is your love letter to cricket, and you probably won't write another one. I think you, you've said that this is your last book about cricket. Is it a little bit sad for you that it sort of finishes with a, an expose of what's really going on within cricket?
0: Well, that's why it doesn't finish with that expose. Those <laughs> chapters about the BCCI are chapters 9 and 10. That's very fair. And the <laughs> last chapter is an ode to cricket. So I did not want to end on a bleak and despairing note because I'm still dreaming about cricket and I'm going to go... Just to sleep tonight after our conversation thinking of Shane One's leg break.
1: Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Derek. Thank you. Thank you for listening. There are links to works by my guest in the show notes. Please review this show on Apple Podcasts or on any podcasting platform you have access to. This show is made possible by the people who support us on Patreon. So thank you all to those who do. If you want to hear more Red Inker episodes and you have available funds, please help us out on Patreon, which you can find the link also in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is the producer. He looks after your ears. And the theme tune is called The Prisoners by the Red Crickets. If you're liking this podcast, then perhaps you'll like our other show, Double Century. It's my podcast on the history of cricket, where I take you through the stories that made our game. Season 1 included 11 topics like the evolution of batting, reverse swing, and that first crazy test. But Season 2 is dedicated to one topic, race in cricket. For that, we look at the incredible story of Basil D'Oliveira, but also cricket's historically strange relationship with race. We look at what happened to Basil D'Oliveira and also delve into Cricket's historically strange relationship with race. You can find Double Century in all your podcasty streams.